Welcome, friends. Great to be here with you this holiday weekend. Sam Rajofsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. You're listening to the What's Right Show. All right. I know some of you are working. Some are not. Probably most uh, will be off for at least some portion of this weekend. So I am I'm happy to be here with you and to have this time together. Um, I, I, I want to... Before we get to everything that's going on, let me just for a minute here take a moment and recognize this this holiday and what it means to me. As many of you know, my parents came to this country in 1977. I was born a few years later, 1980. My parents were, as legend has it, were so happy to be in the United States of America that they named me after Uncle Sam, right? A popular national figure, if you will. So that's a little bit of my name. Now, I, I, I grew up, my entire upbringing consisted of deep reverence for the American experiment. And it, it's called that, right? Many people call it the American experiment. It's, it's ongoing uh, work in progress. I also came of age in, in the, you know, lived through the two terms of Ronald Reagan. I was, eh, started to be a little politically aware toward the end of the Reagan presidency, much more during George W. Bush. And then, of course, being in high school, junior high and high school under Clinton, one could not help but notice that it really does matter to the great American experiment who is in power. Because there are folks, and we're aware of them, uh, who are politically inclined to destroy, or at least to, at, you know, at best is to harm uh, the United States. And they do so, some of them maliciously, a lot of them through ill-intentioned, uh, but uh, nonetheless some amount of goodwill. They intend to remake America in their beliefs. And, uh, and the consequences of it are horrendous. Now, my pre- if I have a prejudice or an, an, an objective feeling of how this uh, country ought to be, it's we ought to get back to our roots of freedom and opportunity for all. There is a guarantee and ought to be a guarantee of freedom for each and every American. There ought to be a guarantee and promise of opportunity for each and every American. However, inconsistent with those two promises, which are uh, key and very important, and I think trace back to the early foundings of our country, is a notion that something is owed to you or I or to anyone here that results ought to be guaranteed, that outcomes ought to be guaranteed, that equity ought to be guaranteed. All of those notions, of course, are hugely damaging. They harm the great American experiment because what they do, folks, is they, well, well, listen, it's, it's a step back from the idea that with effort, with hard work, with smarts, with ability, you can make it. 
You can create your own American dream the way my parents did when they came here and and it didn't it didn't come overnight folks it was not it was not an easy undertaking remember my mom uh, when she was she, it was her uh, position she was able to come to this country on a visa uh, to work and to teach at Northwestern University and so you know that's that's how they were able to, to come over it wasn't for a couple of years few years that my dad was able to get his uh, work permit and so you know for people that came to this country and have done it legally I'll add that very important have have done it legally and have followed all of the rules it's a brutal path for most that do it this way and nonetheless right at no point was there assistance was there I mean sure there there could have been welfare my parents of course didn't uh, take uh, take the government up on that uh, but there you know there was the, the I watched my parents growing up literally accomplish their American dream on their own with their own efforts with their own smarts with their own hard work it was tremendously inspiring for me and so every fourth of July that comes around I it's, it really is my favorite holiday beyond of course the great celebration of the country and what it means for me as a patriot but also what it means for my family because my parents, you know, grew up under Stalin. They grew up in, in, uh, in the Eastern Bloc of, of what was then, uh, you know, Warsaw Pact country, Czechoslovakia. Uh, they grew up in a very oppressive, uh, uh, under a very oppressive regime and, and dreamt their entire childhoods of escaping that. Imagine being born into a country that is so oppressive that you want nothing more than to leave the very place that has been home to generations of your family before you. And so they did in 1968 during the Prague Spring when the Soviets invaded, reinvaded to reconquest Czechoslovakia. My parents got up and left. My mom went to, uh, to France. My dad went to, went to Holland and, and they met, they married. And while they were living in Holland, in the Netherlands, I looked around them and they said, you know, this, this place is being completely taken over by leftists. We see the writing on the wall. And it's interesting to me, and I'll talk a little bit more about this here as the show progresses. Some of you may be aware of these scenes coming out of France, out of Paris, whole neighborhoods on fire. There is a mayor of a uh, subdivision of Paris that had, his home was burned to the ground with, with uh, his wife and child barely making it out alive. Europe is a tinderbox. And I'll tell you candidly, the, uh, what you're seeing today, uh, when you open, look at the news, uh, see what's, you know, these, these horrible scenes out of Paris, it's going, it's happened to lesser extent in other places as well, is a direct consequence of the policies that my parents uh, saw taking root back in the in the seventies, and so my I, I, my dad said this many a time. Said, "Look, my, we we looked around, we saw what was going on, we saw that these people, these liberals, that were taking over these great European countries, had a desire to completely remake these countries, to revolutionize these countries, to get rid of conservative principles." And my parents said, this is going to be a problem. This is, you know, eventually, all of Europe will be consumed by this leftist blight. 
And so the decision, they made the decision, where could we go in the world that's free? Where do we go in the world that has opportunity? And the decision was, of course, to come to the U.S. And so after some time, they were able to do that. And it is thanks to that decision that I was able to grow up here. So every 4th of July, I think about this. I think about my, the, the, the great fortune that I had, that my parents were able to come to this country, that I was able to be born and raised here. But it also reminds me of something else. It reminds me of so many countries in years past that have been absolutely destroyed by ideologies that are detrimental to those countries, to their evolution, and actually make them regress and in some cases die. And that is why what we do here and why this program and, and is so important and our opportunity to talk on a daily basis, weekdays, one to three here on News Talk 840, KXNT, and we talk about what? All the ways that we need to save our country, save the state of Nevada, save the city of Las Vegas, that it is important that we be politically engaged in order to fight extremism. Because, folks, the, the people out there that want to destroy it all, who are just getting started, mind you, if we don't push back, they win. And the consequences of that, I do not believe, uh, are very pretty. So I'm going to take a quick break here. I'm so happy to have you with us uh, here. It's, uh, these are always my favorite shows around this time of year when we do have a moment to celebrate the United States of America. God bless America. Sam Rajofsky here, News Talk 840, KXNT. I'll be back in just a moment. If you've been in an accident, there's no reason to call a sleazy lawyer. It's not just about the settlement check. It's about representing your interests and your values. So call Sam and Ash at 702-820-1234 or visit samandashlaw.com. Nevada's favorite recovering Californian here behind the What's Right Show microphone. Friends, good to be with you this holiday weekend. So some fun facts about the 4th of July real fast. I don't know if you knew this, but the actual Declaration of Independence was not, uh, well, it was adopted on the 4th of July, uh, but uh, the, the, the vote the, the moment where, where all the delegates in the Continental Congress voted in favor of independence was actually on the 2nd of July. And John Adams, he, he, was, uh, he got a little petty about this because he was, he was uh, keen on making July 2nd the big holiday. Uh, he, he said it was going to be the most important epochal moment in the history of America. And then... When the official holiday was set for the 4th of July, uh, he was so bent out of shape about it that allegedly uh, throughout the rest of his life turned down invitations uh, to go to any 4th of July celebrations. So uh, if you throw a 4th of July party and you have somebody say, sorry, I only celebrated on the 2nd, you'll know why. Now, the other thing that I think is an interesting thing to, to note that the Revolutionary War that started, uh, was it April uh, 1870-75, uh, lasted approximately seven years, and it was uh, not popular among the colonists. I don't know if they did a Gallup poll, if they called every single colonist, polled them, uh, but, but apparently 
historians believe it was, it was actually a, a relatively unpopular war. And uh, figuring out just uh, 45% is the number uh, that is reported. So 45% of colonists supported the war um, at no time more than that. And at least a third of colonists fought for the British. So I, I just, I'm, I'm throwing this out there because how often do you hear, oh, this time that we're in right now, it is America is so divided. This time right now is just, it's the worst. And, uh, and I, I think to myself, well, that's, you know, if, you, if you look at old newspapers, if you go back 100 years, you look at newspapers from 1920s, you, you think there's no vitriol today. You, you, it's, it's delusional. And, and so now, when next time somebody tells you, well, you know, today is very divided America, so negative, it's so terrible, you can say, well, did you know that only 45% of colonists supported the War of Independence? Uh, yes, all of that is true. Now, I, I am going to get to, and I'll do it here, uh, maybe top of the hour. There, on Friday, I'll just say this, on Friday when, when we all went home for the weekend, the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, sent a flimsy, flim-flam, two-page letter, barely two-page letter, uh, to Jim Jordan in D.C. And I want to get into this letter because it's more of what it doesn't say than what it says about his role. And you remember, uh, if you'll recall, David Weiss is the U.S. Attorney in Delaware who, uh, according to whistleblowers, uh, that have come forward to the Republicans in Congress. Uh, th this guy, he's, he, he, he apparently was, was stymied by Attorney General Merrick Garland in his efforts to charge Hunter Biden with felonies, both in Washington, D.C. and in California. So I'll get into that because it's, it's folks, I, I'll tell you, I think, I think it's starting to smoke. Uh, there might even be a few flames uh, beginning to show. So I, this is a story I want to have a little bit of time to get into it properly and go, go through it uh, in great detail. So I'll, I will do that uh, here in a moment. Now, I, one thing, I'm, if you're following what's going on in France, I mentioned it just last segment. Here's, here's, the, here's the rub, okay? This is, the, the media right now is portraying the riots in France that... Uh, I guess were ignited after a police officer killed a young man, shot and killed a young man. Uh, it's, 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 I think it's being perceived through a BLM lens here in the U.S., a police brutality lens. Uh, and so we're missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that, that, that France, the Netherlands, Germany certainly, a number of European countries Italy, uh, to great detriment even as well, have really, uh, starting in the 70s, decided that they would uh, remake the look of their countries. And it was really that blatant. I mean, it was that explicit. Left-wing politicians came to power, and one of the things that they would say, and they, they did this and said it in debates, they, they were quoted in the newspaper to say something along the lines of, our countries are our nations are too homogenous. Our countries, we need a little bit of diversity. 
We need to become more multicultural. And by the way, this uh, particular uh, thread of, uh, of thinking continued well into my lifetime. I mean, I remember the, the push for multiculturalism as a kid in, in school when I was growing up. Uh, certainly, I remember it in, in middle school and high school. I remember teachers telling us, oh, it's important. Multicultural day, remember that? Multiculturalism, that was the word. But based on it, these European countries imported uh, a whole lot of people. Now, they, in, in some cases, they needed the labor. Uh, you know, they called it the Gastarbeiters, the, the guest workers in Germany. So they needed some labor, they needed cheap labor, and so they imported people from, uh, you know, some, some very third world countries. And, and these were, by the way, these were people who were fairly primitive. These weren't, uh, for the most part, these were not the doctors or the engineers or the professors that were coming from the Middle East, for example, or from North Africa. These were, these were people who were um, who, were, who were menial laborers. And what happened over time in Europe is, is these groups of people, one, uh, you know, came in, in huge numbers, brought family members over with them. Two, they didn't assimilate. Um, it, it was, that was a, that's a phenomenon that, that occurred certainly in, in, in Europe, and, and, it, and it's something that we struggle with here in our country too. The big waves of immigration that occurred at the turn of the century, 1900s, and, and late, late uh, 1800s, those were people that came here and, and you know, learned English and, and, and assimilated in schools and, and sought to you know, be, be the best that they possibly could be, which is the type of immigration, right, that every country ought to encourage because that's the type of immigration that can cause a country to thrive. But in Europe... Uh, it, it became uh, quite, a, quite a problem. Now, when you combine that, when you combine this with a very advanced and healthy welfare state, what you end up having occur is you have countries that are, well, you have, what you ultimately have is, is, is you have people that will come over and then take advantage of the system. And it creates an enormous burden. It creates enormous tension because imagine that you're a guy in France. Imagine that you're, you're, you're a working guy and you actually have a decent job and half your money goes up in smoke and taxes. And every time you walk to work, you come back home, you pass people on the street that are just sitting there collecting benefits for themselves and for, for three or four of their kids. It creates enormous resentment as you might imagine. Now, all of this is not, this is not me saying it. This is even people who are well aware of the situation on the ground, even people who are themselves immigrants. And that's, the, that's, that's what you're, the, the situation in Europe right now is, it's a, it's a tinderbox. It's going, and, and you add to it, I mean, the enormous burdens of the welfare state, the lack of freedom, the, the, the nature of the government coming in and dictating everything, how long your work week is, how many hours you can work, when can stores be open. I mean, we as Americans have no idea, really, the extent to which Europe dictates to its citizens. So I'll give you a little more on this when we return. Sam Marjofsky here, News Talk 840 KXNT. May this never happen here in the U.S. and serve as a warning 
to all of us to avoid this kind of thinking. Back in a moment, folks. Don't go anywhere. Personal injury law is constantly changing. Uber and Lyft accidents aren't like other cases, but most law firms haven't kept up. Don't trust a new case to a lawyer who's stuck in the past. Call Sam and Ash, 702-820-1234, or visit samandashlaw.com. Bottom of the hour here on the What's Right show. Sam Rajofsky on News Talk 840 KXNT. Consider us your sanity lifeline in these challenging times. You can always reach me, Sam at SamAndAshLaw.com, Sam at SamAndAshLaw.com, or visit the socials at What's Right Show, both on Instagram and Twitter. Now, talking about France, a lot of that in the news right now, horrifying riots, civil unrest, the kind of things... Uh, that we fear occurring here in this country. We saw, of course, in the summer of 2020, uh, similar events break out in cities across America when uh, protesters took to the street ostensibly uh, taking a stand against the death of George Floyd. We all know it was a bit more than that. BLM now, an organization, well, (laughs) somewhat discredited, no? And we saw from the beginning the makings of a uh, left-wing push to radicalize this country and that what may have been a somewhat legitimate act of protest against certainly uh, an incident, an an event that was despicable for every person that saw it, uh, turned into something that was then used to well, I mean, it's the, the burning of businesses and, and, and deaths that ensued and uh, homes that were destroyed and livelihoods that were, were, were wiped out. I mean, just devastating. You're seeing that now happen in France. That's a little different in France. And I was mentioned just before the, uh, before the bottom of the hour that we had – Europe has pursued since 1970s both – two things, both a, a significant – uh, effort to increase the breadth and size of their welfare state. Uh, you, you cannot imagine how good it is being on welfare in France, for example. And, and so where does that money come from? Well, it comes off the backs of people that are working, and you can imagine that creates a tremendous amount of resentment. Now, the welfare state in and of itself would be somewhat sustainable if it was limited to people who were in France uh, but, you know, and not widely expanded to, uh, a, well, a huge group of immigrants that have come in the last several decades who have um, come to the country, most of them largely legally, but were encouraged to come by the government, are there now, and are, uh, you know, when you start talking to French people and you, you start listening to what's going on, you realize that a lot of these folks are, are not contributing and paying into the system as they should. Now, I, I, I had, my, my, my dad sent me a, a fascinating interview back from September of 22, so well before these riots began, by a gentleman, a, a, an imam who lives a, a Muslim, a Shia Muslim influencer, his name is Muhammad Tawahidi. Tawahidi, and he, um, he lives, I believe, in, in, uh, in, in Australia. Uh, but he's from Iran originally. 
And, uh, but he, so he's, and his nationality is Australian. And he's, he's somebody who's long advocated for the moderation of Islam, reform in Islam, uh, believes that the Quran uh, outlaws uh, any acts of terrorism, etc. But he, he sat down for a wide-ranging uh, wide interview with the Persian News Program back in September. And what he said here, considering what you see on the streets of Paris today, of Paris today is almost like a, a voice, uh, you know, a voice from, you know, foretelling the future. And so here's uh, what he's responding to Macron, the president of France, who had just before this interview said that the Islamic world is in crisis. And his response to it is, well, pretty direct. The president of France recently said the Islamic world is in a crisis. I say, no, you are in a crisis. You went to the Muslim countries and you imported the garbage that the Muslim countries wanted to put in prison or isolate away from society. You went and you imported them. Why? For cheap labor. But these Islamist extremists, they don't want to work. They want free welfare. They want to marry French women, blonde hair, blue eyes. They don't have time to work. And he goes on to say, basically, that this is a, uh, a self-created problem and that these are, when you look around Muslim countries, when you look at uh, places like Dubai and, and the Emirates, everywhere, you, you look around these countries and you see what, you know, how they operate. They, they don't want these extremists there either. They're all too happy to send the worst of the worst out of the country and get rid of them. And it's a fool's errand in, 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 the, in the effort to pursue multiculturalism, in the effort to, to, be, to be woke, to be uh, oh, you know, you know, arms wide open and, and, and sing kumbaya and everything's going to be great for these countries in Europe to take this garbage, right? This, by the way, has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. Every country has their garbage. Every country. Look at us, right? We have criminals here. Would we want to send them to other countries if other countries would have them? Absolutely. I think uh, many of us would agree on that point. So it's, you know, this is it's a simple fact that there are elements in Europe. And, and this is why, by the way, I have, I am so concerned with immigration in this country. Not because we have it, but because, and hear me out on this, we don't have enough of it. We don't have enough of the right kind of immigration. If we don't secure our border and pick and choose what people come in, it will be only a matter of time before we don't have a country. And you understand viscerally what I mean by this. We want immigrants. We want the best of the best. We want people who, want, who come here to work hard. We want people who have skills. We have a shortage of nurses. We need nurses. We, have, we need engineers. We need so many talented people in the world who would love nothing more than an, than an opportunity to come, come to America. And you know, I'll tell you what the problem is. The problem at the border is that anybody can cross the border pretty much as long as they can survive the grueling trek. Anyone can get in this country as so long as they pay thousands of dollars to Coyote to take them, a guy to take them across. But if you want to get in through the front door, I mean, hell's bells, it's an ordeal. Ask anyone who's done that legally. And it ought not to be this way. 
we ought to do everything in our power to restrict illegal immigration and then simultaneously make it easier for people to come to this country legally through the front door, to be checked in, to be checked out. That's the America that we need to get back. That's where we were. And that's why we are, in fact, culturally, when you look back, do a 23andMe on anybody here in the U.S. I'll give you diversity, right? We're from all the four corners of the world. But we need to get back to understanding who's coming in. Now, by contrast, and this is interesting in Europe, Eastern Europe does things differently. And this is why the left Typically, with the exception of Ukraine, typically the left detests Europe. They rail against Poland. They, they, they have all sorts of nasty things to say about Hungary, Viktor Orban, right? And this is what Tawahidi says about Poland, because he says Poland, they, they don't have the same problem. So look at Poland. They don't complain from Islamic extremism, not a single terrorist attack in Poland. The moment they sense there's a problem, they crack down on it. Polish policy, beautiful. The French, no. And what he's referring to here is that in the efforts of being compassionate, in the undertaking of being politically correct, you can't target people uh, in in France or in Germany uh, for, for radicalism. You can't get up and say publicly without great effect to you, look, we have an immigration problem and the immigrants that are here are not good. Some of these people are not good people. I don't know if you've been following this, but in in Great Britain, uh, a number of people have been deplatformed by their banks. They've been told flat out, you can't bank here anymore. And what they're finding out is because somebody went online and said that they were against widespread migration to the country. They presented what what the bank called an anti-immigrant position, and they they were sent packing. They were given two months to close their accounts. Even prominent people are getting affected by this. That kind of stuff happens in Europe. And by the way, a little bit of it was occurring here too. Remember Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase was closing down accounts of people that were involved in protests and over COVID and that kind of thing. Very dangerous. These are, uh, these are warning signs, things we, do, we want to avoid in this country. Now, by and large, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, again, this is, the, the advantage that we have here in the U.S. is, again, the, the, the welfare state is not nearly as, as profoundly ingrained in our, in our culture as it, as it is in Europe, but it's getting there. And, um, and it's, it's terrifying, friends. It's absolutely terrifying. So this, this is a situation to watch and all stay uh, uh, on top of it because it, it is a, a cautionary tale for every person here in the U.S. Sam Rajowski, News Talk 840, KXNT. You're listening to The What's Right Show. One of the things that I love is when the left begins to attack itself, even if it's, well, not necessarily ideologically consistent. Follow me here, folks. Sam Rajovsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. This hour brought to you by Sam and Ash Injury Law. So we're just talking about immigration, France, the riots, everything going on there, explaining to you that uh, a, a, a long-standing effort by Europe, uh, European countries, particularly Western European countries, to make their countries more diverse. They've imported a lot of garbage. And it has to be said this way. They've imported dangerous people. 
a lot of radicals, a lot of people who are there to do menial jobs, read people who are not integrating into society, who are not becoming French or maintaining their own identities. You have towns in Great Britain, for example, that um, whole areas that, that I mean, it's, English is not spoken there. Okay, and uh, when it when it is, they still want to follow Sharia law and things like that. So it's and that's a that's a real thing. Police in in Great Britain will tell you that there are no go zones. But if you mention that, oh my gosh, all, the whole world falls in, and you're the racist. Now I say this because there was an interesting back and forth illustrating this point. There was a gal, Yasmin Mohammed. She's a human rights campaigner, author of Unveiled: How Western Liberals empower radical Islam. And she got into it with the, uh, the editor of uh, the British Muslim news site called Five Pillars, Rashan M. Salih, because uh, Rashan Salih test, uh, tweeted out, quote, this is in light of everything going on, France is a racist and Islamophobic nation. The current riots are an inevitable expression of anger and frustration by the oppressed, close quote. Yasmin's response is great. Quote, someone needs to explain to me why Muslims kill themselves trying to get to France if it's such a racist and Islamophobic nation. I don't see you all run into China because you know the difference. This person is tweeting from the racist and Islamophobic UK. 50 plus countries aren't enough for you lot. If you want to stay away from racists and Islamophobes, you have more than enough options. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because by the way, what she's saying here, she's kind of saying the same thing that some of us say here in the U.S. When we hear criticisms of how racist America is, my reaction to it is always, well, if it's so damn racist, why does every person, every white, brown, black, whatever person, basically the whole world wants to come here and interestingly enough, as a general rule, from my experience, uh, immigrants that come to this country are some of the most patriotic and positive people about uh, in their views of, of this country. And then you get you know, white liberals that grew up with, with, with privilege and, 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 and went to the best schools and everything, and they're the ones talking down America. So this apparently is not unique to just us. It's happening other places in the world as well. But where it gets fun for me and where I think this kind of ties into some stuff going on here is, you know, there's, there's pockets of, of uh, Muslim immigration in this, in this country. And this, uh, uh, until recently, was something of great pride for the left. But then something happened. The left began pushing all the LGBTQ stuff in schools, the trans kids in schools, the pronouns, all the stuff, right? The big, you know, the, the alphabet people stuff. And I'm not going to relitigate that. That's not the point. But a very interesting thing happened. And that is that Muslim parents in places like Minneapolis pushed back. And the reaction that the left has, by the way, they went into shock because... This was a group, these were our people. I mean, this was, this was our, they belong, and this is how the left thinks, they belong on our plantation. And I hate to put it that bluntly, but that is, if you start listening to the reactions here, that's what they're saying. 
And Jen Psaki on Sunday, this weekend, went on MSNBC and blamed this thing on the Republicans, if you can believe this. Here's what she said. By pitting one group of Americans against another, the GOP successfully managed to split off Southern whites from the Democratic Party. Now, decades later, the right wing is reviving that same playbook. What? This time with Muslim Americans and trans people. Uh. Hear me out here. The GOP is trying to recruit Muslim Americans, a community that makes up less than 2% of the U.S. population, against another tiny marginalized group of Americans, transgender people. Um, I am sorry to tell you this, Jen, but minorities actually are all individual people that think for themselves. That's a fact. Number one. Number two. Muslim Americans, okay, I don't care if they're a minority or not, that's irrelevant. They're in, in many ways very, very culturally conservative. This has nothing to do with the GOP. This has everything to do with the fact that your party is going off the lunatic deep end. And what you assume is that you, by making in your head victims out of these people, this community is made up of less than 2% of the U.S. population. What I hear in that is victim. They're victims. They need us. Imagine being a Muslim American parent, two parents at home. You've got two kids in school. Your kid goes to school, and all he gets for the month of June Thankfully, you know, it's not a year-round school, so, you know, it was only a couple weeks. All he gets is LGBTQIA plus pride, pride, pride. And that is inconsistent with the values that you have in your home. And now the left, they don't know how to process this. Because everybody's supposed to get along. But the, the problem is, is that, <laughs> that, that, that they don't understand that that is a, that is a disconnect. The same thing in a slightly less obvious way is occurring with Hispanics in this country. Because Hispanics, for the most part, again, it's a generalization, but my experience growing up in California, certainly, I mean, this is, a, a, you go into areas, you know, the, the very Catholic. I mean, you go into East LA, very, very Catholic. Catholic church is important. These are very conservative, culturally conservative families. The more radicalized and anti-family the Democratic Party becomes, the more they're going to lose these people. And blaming it on the GOP is bananas. Jen Psaki continues um, basically saying that, that the GOP wants everybody to forget that they hate Muslims. And who better to go after the new enemy than the old enemy? Just to summarize... The right-wingers, the conspiracy theorists, the birthers, they now want us to forget the years they spent fear-mongering about Muslims and Islam. Ten years ago, standing against Sharia law was the key GOP litmus test. Now that litmus test seems to be how fervently you oppose transgender people. So let's be clear. This is the same old GOP playbook, another cynical ploy to tear at the fabric of our society and damage the idea that out of many, we are one all because they want so desperately to regain the White House. So let me tell you something, Jen, here at uh, 4th of July holiday and everything in the spirit of loving this country. 
maybe you as a rabid left-wing Democrat ought to think for a second. If the so-called radical GOP is aligned on an issue with Muslims, with your 2% minority group that you, you thought was beholden to the Democratic Party at all costs, maybe you're the problem. Maybe if Republicans and Muslims, in your mind, agree on an issue, you should reconsider your position and how you're going to move forward on this. And that is, listen, that's just something I'm throwing out there. This is so despicable thinking like this, but it's unfortunately, it's not unusual. All right, folks, top of the hour. We'll be back in a moment. Sam Rajoski, The What's Right Show will continue. If you've been in an accident, there's no reason to call a sleazy lawyer. It's not just about the settlement check. It's about representing your interests and your values. So call Sam and Ash at 702-820-1234 or visit samandashlaw.com. It's the July 4th weekend. Welcome to the United States of Sam America and Sam We Trust. Yes, that's me. Sam Rajofsky here, the host of The Was Right Show, also better known as Nevada's favorite recovering ex-Californian. Happy to be with you here today um, celebrating the holiday weekend and also, also, also catching up on things that are uh, percolating. Friday uh, night, the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, David Weiss, dropped a letter. Now, I have the letter here. He sent it to Jim Jordan. And it's, you know, it's relatively, seemingly relatively innocuous. Dated June 30th, received about two hours after we uh, were off air on Friday. Uh, The letter responds to uh, Chairman Jim Jordan's letter of June the 22nd. In this letter, the U.S. Attorney for Delaware, the one who was investigating for the past five years, Our good friend Hunter Biden uh, said that he reaffirms everything he has said so far about being completely free and to investigate the Bidens. Nothing to see here, folks. There's no issues whatsoever. Everything was done above board. He said and he reaffirms specifically that he was granted ultimate authority over this matter including responsibility for deciding where, when, and whether to file charges and for making decisions necessary to preserve the integrity of the prosecution consistent with the law. Now, on the second page, it gets a little weird. Now, what I mean by this is uh, it's written in this odd future tense. Remember, this this is June 30th. Well, it's been a week, week and a half since we've had confirmation of the sweetheart deal Hunter Biden got that he's getting a slap on the wrist for two misdemeanor charges related to the gun and to the tax issues. So this thing's a done deal. So listen to how this is written. As the U.S. Attorney for the District of Dar- Delaware, my charging authority is geographically limited to my home district. So what does that what does that say? I mean, it's a fact. Each U.S. attorney is responsible for his or her district. He cannot operate outside of that district. And we've spoken about this because, of course, the, the whistleblowers claimed that he was not allowed 
to get permission to operate outside the district. So here's what he says. If venue for a case lies elsewhere, common departmental practice is to contact the U.S. Attorney's Office for the district in question and determine whether it, meaning that office in another district, if that office wants to partner on the case. David Wise continues, if not, I may request special, I may, listen to that, I may request special attorney status from the Attorney General. And he mentions the U.S. Code that applies. Here, I have been assured that if necessary, after the above process, I would be granted that authority in the District of Columbia, the Central District of California, or any other district where charges could be brought in this manner. But that's an if. It's a future conditional on something occurring. I would think, and hear me out on this, folks. I would think that if the investigation were done, as we've been told it is, if there's a plea deal in place that gets formalized at the end of this month, it's over. It's done. And wouldn't you, with a very serious and credible allegation by a whistleblower present in the room when you, according to the whistleblower, asked for that permission and was denied and were denied that permission, wouldn't you want to say in this letter something along the lines of, and let me just fix it with tenses, I can request special attorney status. Here, I was assured, if necessary, I, I, I asked for that. Wouldn't you say I asked for that permission and I didn't, and I, and I got it, but I didn't need it. And it was in the hands of these other attorney generals, uh, excuse me, U.S. attorneys. This to me, I, I, I'm reading this and I sense a blatant admission that he that well that the whistleblower is um probably very correct in what he said now the new york post uh describes this as um uh blowing the lid of the cover up off the hunter biden's cushy plea deal that's what they call it they say that weiss admits that he did not have the power to charge in the districts where hunter allegedly evaded taxes and that the only way to override the refusals of the Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys in D.C. and the Central District of California is to charge Hunter, uh, to charge Hunter was with special powers granted by Merrick Garland. That clearly did not happen. Now, this goes back to what the IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley said. He said, I mean, because remember, he told us that the, that the DOJ obstructed efforts by the U.S. attorney to get charges filed against Hunter. That this five-year tax probe and the associated gun charge ended up fizzling in two misdemeanor charges because the guy that was given the ultimate authority to do something in this case didn't have jurisdiction. And now we're at the root of what this whole smoke and mirrors thing was and is. Because even the New York Post doesn't get at this and that you got to go back a little bit in time. Because when, story, when the story of this broke and when every time a reporter, any kind of reporter with half a bit of independence to them, asked Jen Psaki and later Karine Jean-Pierre, so 
do we need a special prosecutor here? Because it kind of sounds like these charges against Hunter are pretty serious. It kind of sounds like, you know, you may end up, we may end up having to, uh, you know, to, 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 to have somebody with some independence from the target's son, uh, but, excuse me, father. Because, of course, you know, the target of the investigation is Hunter Biden, and his dad's the president, and the attorney general reports to the president and serves at his whim. And all these U.S. attorneys, including David Weiss in Delaware, report to the uh, attorney general. So it seems pretty, I mean, it was one, two, three. It's Biden, Joe Biden, is, it's like three people removed from the heart of this investigation, if that. Now, why is this important? Because it goes back to the answers that the Biden administration has repeatedly given us. And they always said a, ver a, a variation of the same thing, which is David Weiss is, a, in, is an impeccable public servant. By the way, you know when they say that, that it, you know, <laughs> that they've got nothing else to say. But the other thing that they said is that he's a Trump appointee. And since Delaware is the home state of where, where Hunter was, Hunter was doing the stuff in California. He was doing the stuff in D.C. Meaning by assigning a U.S. attorney in a district where the crimes didn't occur, they were stymied from the, from the start, meaning the prosecution was stymied. And that ultimately is how Joe Biden protected his son. And in every press conference, by the way, CNN lapped it up, MSNBC, oh, you know, it makes sense, you know, we're going to have a Trump guy investigating. The Trump guy is limited to his district and the big crimes, right? The obstruction crimes, the lying under oath, the millions in tax fraud occurred in California and in, and in D.C. And so they gave it to a guy that didn't have jurisdiction. And then when the guy, according to Whistleblower, then when David Weiss goes and asks Merrick Garland for jurisdiction, he gets denied. And then on Friday, David Weiss writes a letter to Jim Jordan in the House of Representatives and says, says what? Does this lame, in the future, I have been guaranteed I would be granted this power? This is a guy who's very, very careful not to tell a technical lie, but he's absolutely misleading us because he's not answering the question, were you past tense obstructed? He's answering, I have been guaranteed in the future that I would be given these authorities. I have been assured that if necessary, after the above process, I would be granted 15, uh, was it 515 authority, Section 515 authority, to bring charges in any district where charges could be brought in this matter. It also doesn't answer another very important question, and that is, the two district attorneys, uh, excuse me, uh, U.S. attorneys that represented, that worked in the uh, California, the Central District of California, and in Washington, D.C., those are both Democrats. And they didn't want to press charges. They didn't want to investigate this. They didn't want to loop him in. So even if Merrick Garland said to these guys, this is, this is by the way, I'm going to paint for you how, how this cover-up would be affected. All Merrick Garland has to say is go, okay, I'm going to tell I'm going to tell David Weiss in Delaware that he can get 
participation. He can be given permission to ask for participation from other U.S. attorneys. I'll let him ask, but you guys are going to say no. And that's how this happened. The more that comes out about this, the more it's going to stink. All right, we're going to take a quick break. I will be back. Sam Rajofsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. The news just doesn't stop with this, does it? Keeps dripping. Sam Rajofsky again here. News Talk 840 KXNT. Back in a moment. Greetings and welcome back to the What's Right Show, your place for common sense conservatism here on News Talk 840 KXNT, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Sam Rajovsky here, your favorite, well, Nevada's favorite, recovering Californian, uh, talking about this Hunter Biden mess. It the, the letter that got sent to Jim Jordan and the Republicans uh, on the uh, Judiciary Committee, the House of Representatives. This does not, this is from the attorney, uh, U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, who was selected by Merrick Garland to pursue this case because, quote unquote, he was independent by virtue of having been appointed by a Republican, by Donald Trump. But in turn, we're now discovering that he had no authority whatsoever to charge. Uh, Hunter Biden with any of the criminal conduct that occurred in California or in Washington, D.C., which formed a large body of the criminal charges that he could have faced because that's where these crimes were committed. Now, I want to remind you that Shapley, the IRS agent who is one of the uh, publicly known whistleblowers that has come forward and reported to the House Republicans, he uh, delivered testimony under oath on October 7th in 2022, he testified about a red line meeting with the investigative team. Excuse me, that meeting, I'm sorry, folks, I have got this wrong. The meeting occurred in October 7th, 2022. It was only recently that he gave sworn testimony to the House. And in that meeting, that red line meeting back in October, Weiss dropped And this is according to Shapley. Weiss dropped the earth-shattering news that Graves, who's one of the U.S. attorneys there uh, for the other districts, would not allow him to charge in his district. And that he subsequently, meaning Weiss, subsequently asked for special counsel authority from the main office at the Department of Justice. And at that time, he was denied that authority. Weiss stated that he's not the deciding person on whether charges are filed. Now, here's the part of it that where I think it gets good. There are at least four other witnesses that were present for Weiss's remarks, meaning there were a total of at least six people in the room. Now, that adds to credibility. That can be verified. We can, obviously, investigators can talk to those witnesses and have them give testimony under oath. Weiss told the team that the government would not be bringing the most serious charges against Hunter and the ones most risky to his father for the 2014-2015 tax years. That's when all that money was collected. And guess what? Just by putting on the brakes, just by having Merrick Garland tap the brakes and slow this down and not give this authority to David Weiss, 
he allowed the statute of limitations to expire, which it did the following month. Now, I want to remind you what was occurring during this time. You remember this text message that we learned about last week? Hunter Biden's WhatsApp message. I am sitting here with my father, and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. Tell the director that I would like to resolve this now before it gets out of hand, and now means tonight. And Z, if I get a call, this is Hunter Biden threatening some Chinese guy with ties to the Communist Party. And Z, if I get a call or a text from anyone involved in this other than you, Zhang, or the chairman, I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me, who could that be, by the way? The man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I'm sitting here waiting for the call with my father. End of message. So you can imagine the money that was received, which is by some account somewhere between five and $10 million, the money received would have been when uh, Joe Biden was still vice president. So this text message came from that 2014-2015 tax period. Not only did they collect money from these various people, not only did they sell the office of a vice president, not only is it absurd to claim that this was some lone crackhead operating on his own because it's all traceable. You can figure out where Hunter was when he sent that text message. There are visitor logs at the vice presidential mansion. This can all be verified. It's starting to look like this was all done with the full knowledge of Joe Biden, who then accepted money directly when you follow the finances, went to him and other family members resulted in the purchase of some expensive real estate and a suspicious increase in his lifestyle given his lifelong governmental salary. Not only did they do all that, they didn't pay taxes on any of it. And when a 14-year veteran investigator goes, why the hell are we not charging this? Why the, 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 the U.S. attorney charged with, with figuring this out? Goes, I can't charge it. I'm, I'm ham, I, my hand, hands are tied here. They're not giving me special counsel authority, and the two other U.S. attorneys where these crimes committed or likely were committed aren't cooperating. Likely because they were given, whether explicitly or implicitly, a stand-down order by the Department of Justice at the behest of Joe Biden. And why is he stalling it? Well, if you listen to the liberal, oh, this is a father, you know, it's a story of a father's love. no. This is a story of a greedy politician who sold his office and now wants to stay out of jail. That's what this is about. Make no mistake, there is nothing more to it than that. And it is absolutely scandalous that the American news media, for the most part, is completely ignoring this story. Oh, by the way, the, yeah, the New York Times, they did a piece on this. I read it. I have it here somewhere in my, my stack of stuff. But the best part is they buried, they buried the lead 26 paragraphs in. They buried it. They didn't want it. They, they literally put it on. What page was this? I had it here. I mean, they are, they are hiding the ball. Everybody is hiding the ball on this. And I tell you, it's, it's ultimately, but I tell you, they, they can't keep ignoring it. 
It's only going to get worse, folks. Now, what does this mean for the political race uh, for re-election for Joe Biden? I always ask that question because what, is it, what does it foretell? And I've, I've long been saying now that I, I believe it's more likely than not than, that, that Joe Biden not get the nomination. I, he may still get it. Don't get me wrong. But I think there's strong reason to believe that he won't. And what you're going to sense is as the, as the, as the left-wing media begins to pick up on it, and start to report the story, that will be the sign that the Democratic power establishment has decided to bail on Joe Biden. So who comes in? Let's discuss that a little bit of the race, Republican and Democrat side, state of 2024, when we return. Sam Rajofsky, News Talk 840, KXNT. You're listening to The What's Right Show. Personal injury law is constantly changing. Uber and Lyft accidents aren't like other cases, but most law firms haven't kept up. Don't trust a new case to a lawyer who's stuck in the past. Call Sam and Ash, 702-820-1234, or visit salmonashlaw.com. Welcome to the What's Right Show. Sam Rajofsky here, your host, Nevada's favorite recovering Californian lawyer and all-around great guy. Uh, I know I don't like to usually talk about food that often here on the on the program. I just have to tell you, I had a, a exceptional experience on uh, Saturday night that I want to share with you real fast. I was invited by 1228 Maine. There's a new restaurant in downtown Las Vegas in the Arts District. It's a block from my office. And uh, it's uh, a creation uh, brought by the people behind Wolfgang Pucks. So it's really one of the, uh, I think, the next uh, chapters in uh, downtown uh, fine dining. It's a casual place. It's not an intimidating restaurant. Uh, you go there, it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, I went for... Uh, I went there to test the uh, dinner menu, and I, I had only been there for breakfast and for lunch so far. They just began serving uh, uh, dinner last week, and I went with John Curtis and a whole bunch of other people from around town that are you know public people and like to eat food, and it was an absolutely exceptional evening. I have to tell you, it is spectacular what is happening in this town off strip. And it is particularly incredible what is occurring in, in downtown and in the Arts District. If you have not been lately to the Arts District, uh, you need to stop by. By the way, our offices are beautiful, so you'll see us on the corner of Charleston and Casino Center Drive, uh, Boulevard, excuse me. But you'll also, um, you'll also see restaurants like Esther's Kitchen. And you know, there's uh, some a great barbecue place. Uh, there's a chef, uh, the chef there. I mean, it's unbelievable stuff. Um, yeah, it, well, and, and good pie, the pizza place. Um, it's it's unbelievable stuff. But twelve twenty eight Main, twelve twenty eight Main is the new restaurant. It's on Main Street, on literally on twelve twenty eight Main Street, and and uh, I had. Uh, I had one of the best meals I've had in town in a long time and am uh, absolutely was blown away by it. So I needed to mention that. Um, can I say this one thing very quickly? While I was sitting there, somebody, uh, a, a, a mutual friend who was a D.C. guy, uh, Matt Brooks was there. And uh, that's not the story. It's not about Matt Brooks, but we were talking, and, and the reason that he was able to make the dinner, he was supposed to leave in the morning. 
but his flight was canceled because, of course, he was booked on United Airlines. And, you know, United right now is having a full-scale meltdown, and they're blaming it on everybody they possibly can. It's, uh, but they're, they're throwing holiday plans into total chaos, affecting many thousands of people. And I just want everybody, I want you all to remember that it was two years ago when the CEO, Kirby, I think is his name, Two years ago, yeah, Scott Kirby, the CEO of United Airlines, he's the guy who came out and he said, what do we need? What do we need for the benefit of air travel? Well, uh, he said it's diversity. Remember this? Pulling up a story here uh, from all the way back in April of 2021. The CEO of United Airlines reaffirmed his commitment that half of the airline's newly trained pilots will be women or people of color. Now, who understands how diversity hiring works? In order to meet a percentage uh, number like that, you're going to have to drop standards. Now, people get all aghast by that and they say well how is that possible that's you're that's a terribly racist thing to say sam but the reality is that it is very difficult right now for airlines to hire qualified pilots period if you're a pilot there's a bidding war out there for you now it slowed a little bit but it was you know before the pandemic it was it was a i mean it was a you could pretty much ask for for real i mean real money People are leaving all the feeder carriers, moving to the big airlines because of the pay. And the idea that you put, and we've, of course, talked about this, the idea that you, you say, well, we need half the people to be a, a minority or a person of color or a woman, limits you in the candidates that you can attract. You're shrinking the pool. And when you shrink the pool, if you have to fill those seats, if you have to run those flights, what happens? You're going to lower the standards. Now, this is where uh, the DEI initiative uh, starts to go a little crazy because the last place that any of us want somebody who is less qualified to be is the cockpit. You know, I think standing beside the operating table is also another place where, you know, you don't want somebody who's there because of DEI. Diversity is great at the coffee shop. Fine. You want diversity in the coffee shop? Great. Diversity in the cockpit? Forget it. So here's the airline that for two plus years, probably longer, has been pushing for this kind of diversity. And this was just about pilots. Trust me, it's in the back office too. So no one's saying right now, hey, hey, excuse me, let's do a call back to two years ago. When Kirby said that diversity was at the forefront of United Hiring. And look, United is coming apart. Now, Scott Kirby's been in the news this week, not just because of these meltdowns, but also because he got caught flying a chartered private jet right during the major travel disruptions affecting his airline. That's right. Last Wednesday, Kirby took a private jet from Teterboro Airport. That's the airport closest to Manhattan, by the way. It's in New Jersey, but that's where all the wealthy New Yorkers fly to. Uh, to Denver, Colorado. This according to a United spokesperson. 
confirming this to CBS News. About 7,400 U.S. flights were delayed on Wednesday. Another 1,200 U.S. flights were canceled. Kirby said in a statement provided to CBS News Friday evening that it was the wrong decision to charter the jet. Now, I have a question here, and, and hear me out on this. Did Kirby, before he got on that jet, demand that one of the two pilots be either a woman or a person of color? Because I'm going to say he probably didn't because he is a rich guy. He is a person of means, which I don't, of course, hold against him. I just want to point out the hypocrisy. He clearly had to get from point A to point B, and his crappy airline couldn't do it. So what did he do? He went to the private market for a solution. And that I applaud. But the real story here is that Mr. Kirby, I doubt, insisted on diversity hiring practices for his mega urgent flight that he had to take. Right? Absolutely. I'll bet money on it. Right here, right now, $100 on the fact that this guy did not inquire about the race, the diversity qualifications of his flight crew, of either his pilot, his, his PIC, or his second-in-command on that, on, that, on that jet flight. What a, and, and, by this is, and this is, by the way, DEI liberalism wackiness, just in a, in a nutshell. It's all fine for the show. It's all fine for everyone else. But when it, you know, when it gets into it, this guy is going to be running to the best doctor. This guy is going to be looking to have the best pilot fly him, the best person working for him personally. Diversity doesn't actually matter to him. It is, it, it is only for the rest of us to contend with the consequences of his ill-fated ideology. It makes me sick. That's the real story. I mean, I'm looking at these, the, the, oh, he's a guy who took a private jet. How dare he? No, 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 no. This is a guy who's running his airline into the ground because he's prioritizing things that do not matter. And it's particularly poignant now in view of the Supreme Court decision last week on UNC and Harvard, uh, their admissions practices, shooting down on constitutional grounds, uh, affirmative action, uh, it, DEI is in death rows. It has to be. And as I mentioned last week, the only way we get back to being the best country in the world and we beat China is by returning to, to, the, to being a true 100% meritocracy. That's how we beat everybody else. That's how we are better than China. Remember, China, they reward people. They give people positions based on party loyalty. We can't give people positions based on the color of their skin or whether they're male or female or, or, or handicapped or whatever the hell else we're thinking. It doesn't work that way. It's not good for us. We want the best. We want the brightest, regardless of color, regardless of gender, regardless of who you sleep with. That's what we do. And so United Airlines going in the toilet. And unfortunately, the more we do these kind of hocus-pocus things in the military and other institutions that really matter— we're risking the future health of our country. All right, more on the, I promised I was going to get to the, the, the election here. Give you some Governor Newsom updates. Oh, boy. When we return. Sam Merchowski, News Talk 840 KXNT. You're listening to The Wits Right Show. Mm -hmm. 
friends, welcome back uh, to the program. Sam Rajovsky here, News Talk 840 KXNT. Great to be with you. So if, if, if the situation with the Biden crime family continues to get worse, as I've said uh, many a times, there is going to be a growing call within the Democratic Party to find an alternative candidate. Now, the only times... Uh, this week was reporting uh, Biden is in, uh, excuse me, uh, Newsom is on the road in Idaho campaigning for Biden. That's how they're presenting this. Now, I find this humorous because, of course, I mean, Idaho is a you know, right-wing bastion, uh, so probably not going to necessarily uh, turn blue for either Biden or, or Governor Newsom. But I also think it's, it's interesting that Newsom is out there campaigning for, for Biden at a time when, when the general election really is not underway. Yes, yes, the primary matters, and there are primary voters in Idaho, certainly. Uh, but I, you know, I can't help but think that it's an effort to get Newsom out and get him battle-ready, building his own base in red states. Now, there was a tweet, and I had it here uh, just in front of me. There's a tweet that was sent out uh, last week by Patrick Bed-David. And this was, I, I thought this was, was quite good because it lays out a, a strategy, perhaps, for the Democrats to replace uh, Biden with Newsom. And the first step is have Newsom go around defending Biden, selling Biden's record, shows loyalty. Have him, step two, constantly attack DeSantis. Now, now, isn't Biden doing that? Yeah, he's doing that, of course. He's out there fighting with DeSantis, wants to debate DeSantis. DeSantis is like, you're not even in the race. Like, shut up. The Dems are convinced Trump will be forced to drop out. If Biden doesn't step down, this will be step three. Have the mainstream media attack him. And by the way, that's already happening in a, in, a, in a sense because you have ABC, CBS, and NBC have all started going after some of this Hunter Biden stuff. Not heavy, but it's, it's starting to pop up. Now, what's going to happen there? Patrick Bet David says, step four, once Jill notices these endless attacks, she'll sit down and have a private meeting with Biden sharing strategy to save face if he steps down. Now, he's got an easy out, right? Let's put this in here real fast. He's got an easy out. He can always blame the health. And the health is a, is a problem. <laughs> it's getting worse by the, by the week almost. Right? He wandered off. To, I, I don't know if you saw that. He, he, this is worthless for me to play it here. It ends an interview question. And while they're still talking, he gets up, he unmikes himself, and walks out of the studio. And by the way, this is not what you do if you're on a, if you're doing a live segment uh, on a TV station. What happens is you're talking to the to the host, and you've got cameras on you and on the host, and it goes back and forth depending on who's talking. And then when the interview concludes, you stay put because your host needs to finish the segment, close out, and go to break. That's normal. And everybody who's ever done a TV interview is told and understands what you do. By the way, how many of these has Joe Biden done? Literally thousands. So he knows the drill better than any of us how this works. 
the fact that he got up and walked away, it, he's, he's not all there. It's a very sad thing. So he's got an out. He can say, this is back to Patrick Bet David, who was saying, due to health, Jill and I prayed about it. We decided to go to spend time with grandkids. We fixed everything. Trump broke. Now it's time for someone else to do it. And anoint Newsom as being the loyal Biden acolyte, unlike DeSantis, who was disloyal to Trump. Now, what to do with Kamala Harris, where I kind of disagree with him. Um, you know, I, I, think, um, I, think they, I think they've got a huge Kamala problem. Because Kamala does view herself as the heir. She's the anointed one who's supposed to fill in. And by the way, constitutionally, something happens to Biden, she's in. She's president of the United States. Now, he says here that they're going to let her become the first female president for a split second when Biden steps down. Before Andy, this is this to me getting a little wacky. Um, but I, I'm telling you, I, I think I, I think there is a, a lot of chatter within the Democratic Party about Newsom. And they want Newsom now. They're terrified because I, I think, for one, it's the, the criminal case is, is a huge problem. The other thing is, is that Biden's not that popular. And more and more people, even those on, on the left, are starting to point out that his, his mental acuity is, is uh, on the fritz. So now the question would be, what would a matchup between DeSantis and Gavin Newsom look like? The battle of two governors. I'm kind of fascinated by this because, of course, I can't think right now of, I love Nevada, but a state that is better run currently than Florida. I mean, you look at Florida, you, if, if you right now were starting a, a business, where would you want to start it, right? Would you really want to start in, in, in Nevada? I mean, you'd be a little concerned, right? The best thing we have, of course, going for us here is that we're, we're close to California and, and, and we're, you know, we're West Coast, essentially, right? And we're not on the East Coast and that, that has, you know, we're not in a hurricane zone. The weather's actually a lot better here than it is in Florida. But what's, what's the, you know, the, but there's other downsides and the political downsides. I mean, we have a state legislature that is run by the Democrats. But Florida's a well-run state. Florida's been taking people from California in tens of thousands. So how does DeSantis, you know, fight against Newsom? He's, he fights from, I think, from the upper hand is the guy that's got the state that's, that's cleaning California's clock. Now, the people that are defending California, defending Newsom, will parrot all of the things that he said in that disastrous Hannity interview. And I call it disastrous not because, you know, I, because Hannity didn't challenge didn't do anything really to push back on, on Newsom. He's going to say, well, we're, you know, the number, it's seventh economy, fifth economy in the world. We're, we've got more, we've got more tech. We've got more this, we've got more that. I mean, all of that is in and of itself is true. But you have a state that is absolutely growing for less than 1% of the people and is a disaster for everybody else. You have a city where the, you know, we have a state where cities are being run over with crime, with drugs, homelessness. You have a state where 
parents are pulling out kids from school in record numbers. You have a state that is economically uh, actually regressing for 99 plus percent of the people in it. And we know where I think it was the number 45%, 40% of people in California, residents of California are actively thinking about leaving the state. And all that stuff is going to be very difficult for, for Newsom to ignore. So I, you know, the, the, the showdown between them would be, I think, very interesting. Uh, but I also think it's not, um, it's not, a, it's, it's, I mean, I think that Newsom will be a formidable candidate. And, and I will tell you, as somebody who used to live in the Newsom regime, folks, fear that day terrifies me, the idea of Gavin Newsom becoming president. Talk about the step backwards. So it's, um, yeah, we'll get to it on, you know, we'll get to it here uh, on Wednesday on the, the, yeah, we'll get into all this here later in the week as we, as we go through this. I, I, I've got some clips. There's a great interview with DeSantis on Waters on Fox, and we'll, we'll get into all that later. But it's, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. All right. Have a great holiday, great 4th of July. Great to be with you here. God bless America. Sam Rajofsky here with What's Right Show. We'll be back. Don't worry. I'm just going to go here and enjoy the holiday and be with you when I return. 